Welcome to Crossroads. If you're new, my name is Dan. I'd like to invite you at this time to open up your Bibles with me and we can um, study together the Gospel of Mark, where we've been studying for over a year now. And we're, uh, we're in the last uh, kind of scenes here. And throughout the rest of Lent, actually, starting today, we're, we're entering into the dark night, like this last night, and it's going to be just darker and darker all the way up until Easter. And so we're in Mark chapter 14. And I don't know about you, but this time of, of studying Mark has been really beneficial to me. I mean, it's just been a really fruitful challenge, like tons of just challenges as I've been reading and study, studying this and things that have really caused me to think differently and even more like, I don't know, in a new way, sharp sharp towards the kingdom and towards the discipleship. Um, Rod started a new chapter last week, chapter 14. And this is that scene in chapter 14 is one of the most beautiful scenes to me in Mark where the woman opens up that bottle of, of oil and anoints Jesus's feet and um, really kind of ends a section, started with that elderly woman who gave her last two coins. Like, remember that, the two might we call the widow's might or whatever like she gave all of her money and it became kind of this bookend these two women who are giving everything that they could to confirm and to validate uh god and uh, or in the last case to validate jesus he says she's anointing me for my burial she gets it wherever the gospel is preached this woman is going to be kind of this is a picture of what it's going to look like and and so what a great little section to sort of learn, as that is a Mark and Sandwich itself, um, about what's really important. Even that chapter 13, that whole section about the um, troubles and tribulations that are to come is bracketed by the heart of a follower of Jesus that says, I, regardless of that, I am not going to give in to conventional wisdom or whatever might be uh, influencing me to cause me to, to, to not necessarily put Jesus at the center of my life, and I'm going to go for it. And that is worth bringing up because the stories that follow are a pretty big contrast. So today we're going to read through um, and, and sort of think through the story where Jesus has his last supper and where he starts to develop um, a theme of betrayal. We're going to take two weeks on this story, The Last Supper. I only say that so that you just take it easy on me today, okay? Um, but it's, um, I'm going to focus specifically on the betrayal aspect here. And as um, <laughs> a pr- what, if you're one of my friends, you probably, this won't surprise you at all for me to say that loyalty is my like highest value. For whatever reason, loyalty is the way that I just sort of see, this the lens that I see the world through. Any judgment that I may have or big convictions or whatever, just me trying to work that out. And so as I've been just sort of immersed in this story of betrayal or, or as that conversation is being developed between Jesus and his, and his followers, it let me tell you, it's been kind of it's very pungent, you know, flavor, right? It, to me, when I taste that, and so I don't know why I'm saying that, other than maybe take it with a grain of salt. I mean, I may be the best person to talk about this, or the worst person to talk about this. I'll let you decide. Anyways, 
We'll let the text speak for itself as we do a reading here of God's word in Mark chapter 14, and I'll start at verse 10. And if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word at this time. Okay, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. On the first day of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left and went to the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, he said, Truly I say unto you, one of you will betray me. One was eating with me. And they were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It's one of the twelve, he replied, One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go out just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood, the the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if, I, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I say unto you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And everybody else said the same thing. Amen. So if you're taking notes or want a mental framework of where I'm going uh, this morning, I kind of want to explore some patterns of betrayal. Um, specifically, I will just sort of typecast Judas and Peter, but Peter kind of represents everybody, the disciples. And I want to look at it through the lens of some of the soils from the parable of the sower. And I'm asking myself questions this week, like what, what about the patterns that I see here are alive and well in my own life, and, and how have I been tempted to do the same thing? I'm asking questions like, what does the world 
kind of show and tell me is, is permissible in the context of betrayal? Like, is there a contrast when I see Jesus and how he acts in this? Does he represent like a different way? So what are some patterns, um, and, and why do I think of it through the terms of uh, the parable of the soil, sower and the soil? Well, if you remember that parable, and, and if you're reading um, commentaries or scholars on the Gospel of Mark, a lot of them will just point to say this parable is actually an underpinning. It's something that's meant to be woven throughout the whole story. So you may remember Jesus tells a parable back in chapter 4 of a farmer goes out and he's sowing seeds, some on four different types of soil. The hard path, the hard packed stuff doesn't take. The good soil, good nutrient-rich, tilled up soil, or whatever, like that is where the, the seed uh, takes root and is fruitful. And then the other two are kind of like sketchy spot, right? Like it's uh, one is full of rocks and makes it so that whatever is growing in there doesn't have a lot of roots. And when the sun comes, it, it knocks over that plant and it dies. And then the other one is full of thorns. And whenever this, you know, whatever grows there gets choked out by these thorns. And as you're thinking through just stories throughout Mark, like these, re these reactions to the word of the kingdom, these reactions to Jesus uh, that are put on display here, like you, you get to sort of a front row seat as to the type of people who are fruitful, the type of people who are not, and, and uh, the resistance that happens. And sort of, it is a resounding sort of theme. Now, when I'm looking at these two groups in our, in our text today, I see the thorny uh, soil and the rocky soil. Let's just explore that a little bit and just sort of see what the pattern is and, and let it loose within us. Uh, the, the, thorny pa, pa, uh, the thorny patch of soil, I think is consistent in a lot of ways with how I'm viewing what Judas is doing. As Jesus says in his interpretation of that parable, the thorny soil is like when the word is received and the worries of life, the, um, the deceitfulness of wealth or the desire for things start to choke it out. It's growing up. It's, it's stuff that's a part of this same thing. But if it becomes too big of a deal, it'll choke out and it'll kill whatever God is trying to do in that person's life, in our lives. When I see Judas... Um, it seems like he's kind of put into that sort of light. I mean, when you're looking at some of the stuff that he's doing, is, is he responding to money, the deceitfulness of wealth here in this conversation, or, or in other passages where it talks about Judas is using money in an unethical way at times, or, um, and another way of looking at it is his, the worries, what does he say, the worries of life will be something that will choke out the word? Well, depending on how you sort of view Judas, I think it works either way. I grew up, um, not thinking a whole lot about Judas. It was just sort of this guy just randomly decided to betray Jesus and none of us are supposed to be like that, right? And then move on. Just get in and out real fast. And that could be true. I mean, it does sort of seem like a big left turn here. But there has been recently just some other approaches to try and figure out the rationale behind what he's doing. And one of the things that people talk about is that maybe Judas is actually trying to put Jesus in a position to where he will lead a revolution. It doesn't seem like it's going in that direction. It seems like Jesus keeps saying, I'm going to die. 
And, it's, and, it, and is Judas trying to sort of fight against that by putting in a, in a position where he's going to have to fight because people like Judas in that culture were looking for somebody to rise up, somebody who is powerful, who is able to fight against the Roman oppression that they're all experiencing. And so in, on some level, if that stuff is going on, it gets a little... I mean, I would like to just go back to a place where I feel like Judas just, he's just this guy you'll never have anything in common with. It's so crazy, you know? And I, like I said, as a loyalist myself, you're looking at that and you're like, that would never be me. But what about if you boiled it down to this sentence? Judas looked at Jesus and said, I know exactly what you want and I do not think that that's gonna work. Now it starts to feel a little bit close to home. I just feel like there, there are tons of times in my life where I am tempted to say to Jesus, I get it. Like, I get it. I know what you're going for, but it's just not going to work. That's not how it works in our world. That's not what, what that's, that's an ineffective way of doing relationship or, or that's going to leave me in a place that feels sort of vulnerable or that's not going to be something that... Um, you know, we'll make sure at least that the outcome that I desire is going to be there. Because in our world, we are tempted, okay? The thorns are growing up sometimes. And we are tempted to, to care about the things of the world, to use our desire for wealth in a way of control. You have um, a world right now that says, regardless of what Jesus has to do, we have a way of doing it that we think is going to work better. And this is where push comes to shove. And this is the moment where we have to be discerning and actually use Lent for all that it's worth and say, I'm going to take a discerning moment and take a scalpel to my heart right now and say, is this a part of my, is this a pattern that's alive in my life? Because the world is going to teach us and, and tempt us to say, you know what, we have a certain way of doing romance we have a certain way. Jesus has a way, but we think this is going to work. That's not going to work. We have a certain way of doing marriage. You know, this, <laughs> what Jesus is saying about marriage, this is not, that's just not going to work. We have a certain way of doing sexuality. We have a certain way of doing um, politics. We have a certain way of, of, of how we uh, do conflict with one another. We have a certain way of how we pay for things that people have done against us. I know, he says, forgive, be a person who, you know, who shouts forgiveness from the cross, but it just doesn't work. You know what works? Making somebody pay for what they did. And all of a sudden, over time, you know, we may not ever even say what Judas said explicitly. Jesus, it's not going to work. But when we look back at the garden of our life, is it thorny and ridden with all kinds of things that have choked out everything that the Lord has been trying to do? This isn't a game. There will come a point in our lives where we had to look at this that the opportunity before us and say, I am going to choose to follow Jesus. And I'm going to choose to believe that his way is going to work. Something to consider anyways is that side of the coin. If you're a fight or flight model type of person, this would be the fight. 
But if you look at the other side of the coin, we have a little bit of a flight going on, don't you think, when we see Peter and the other disciples. And this is where we start to look at maybe the rocky soil type as a response to what's going on. I mean, in the story of the rocky soil, we have something did take root, something was received with joy, and then it, it, it did grow. But then what happens? When the sun comes out, they, they can't take the heat, and it falls. The, uh, the, the parable interpretation, it says, when the trials of life hit, when persecutions arise, this person falls away. And so that kind of looks exactly like what happens with the other guys. As soon as, uh, as, soon as it gets hot, uh, with, the, with the Roman guards that come around, with the, the, the drama that's happening, they, they act like they never knew Jesus. This is a very uh, tempting place to be and also a very sketchy place to be. As I think about it, um, I don't want to sound too confrontational this morning, okay? So if I need to take a break for a joke or whatever, I will. But if um, we, we do live in a time where there's a lot of like shallowness um, that we could settle for. And so we do really have to, I think, ask ourselves, what? what would deep roots look like or what would lend itself to having deep roots instead of settling for, you know, joyful growth with shallowness, really, when you, when you dig deep. And as I've been taking a couple long walks with the rocky soil lately and just sort of thinking about what is deep roots, where does that come from? I would say, this is just my opinion. I think that deep roots come from private pursuit of the Lord. I actually thought of a little rhyme. <laughs> Resilient roots come from a private pursuit. And don't make fun of me for that, okay? This is just a, an easy way to sort of remember, right? Deep roots come from private pursuit because um, that is something that I really do believe in. Let me just paint the contrast. There are a million things in our culture right now that cannot be private, that, that we want to be public, okay? There's uh, Christian brands everywhere. There's things that we can, we can put a billboard, right, on my chest for Christian, Christian hats or whatever. We can do Christian things on our screens and the public image that we put out there has all kinds of opportunities to look Christian. We have gatherings in this, like, unique location that we live in, tons of Christian gatherings that we can go to. And in those, it's kind of a public setting to be able to look and do things that are very like Christian looking. But does that necessarily mean that there's a depth or that there's rootedness there? I'm not out on any of those things. I think they're all fantastic. I just want to be careful not to trade depth for something that is just on the surface or, or, or something that is vain or, or that looks deep. And I know that you know this. Take the most intimate relationship that you have. Does the intimacy that you have come in a place of public? Like, <laughs> like I know my wife. We have gone through hard stuff. We have been like in just deep places. But it's not because we don't interact only in public. Like, only when we go to church, that's when we have, like, our deepest time. No. I mean, that's part of it. But think about, where are you getting away and privately pursuing the Lord? 
I would play my card and say that that's probably going to be where the nutrient-rich soil uh, is, where that's, that space is cultivated, where you are able to go deep. And if you're even in a place right now, I've seen it myself a hundred times, where you have been just all, given all kinds of energy towards sort of the image of being deep, towards the, the, the quick growth of joy and receiving the Lord. But then one thing comes into your life and it, and it heats up and all of a sudden you fall or you get close to falling. You get close to saying, I, I'm burnt up and this isn't real. And I'm, I'm saying that because I've seen it happen. Some of the people over the years who just are like big time, like publicly into it, one thing happens, you lose a, f- a family member, a friend, or you go through a hard time, or it just feels dark, or you feel like maybe you realize your expectation for when, <laughs> uh, when what you want to have happen isn't the same as when the Lord wanted that to happen or whatever. And then all of a sudden, it's, it reveals that there actually isn't a deep relationship here. Now, what can happen is, this is something that maybe you have seen too, what can happen is that person can say, I do not believe that God is real anymore. I don't believe in this stuff anymore. And I've, as a brother, would just like to say, if you're just looking under the hood and finding out that it's just been shallow, it doesn't mean that God doesn't exist anymore. It just means your relationship doesn't exist. (laughs) Your relationship is not something that has been uh, developed or is not growing and maybe in Lent. This could be a great opportunity for you if you're in that place right now to say, I'm done with all the shallow stuff. I'm not going to trust it anymore. It's not setting me up to be able to withstand the hard stuff in life. And so I'm going to go alone. I'm going to just go for a walk and say, God, tell me who I really am. Tell me my identity. Tell me what you have believed about me since the day that I was born. Show me who I really am and why I'm really here. And I bet you, if you are in a place right now where you just feel burnt up, that this is going to be the place where you realize again your first love, where you realize again who you really are. And God's going to meet you there because he will draw near to those who draw near to him. He even says it, do not be like the guys who just make it look like they're fasting for you to see them. Don't worry about, go into the private place and your father's going to meet you there. If we are shallow and in a shallow place, this is going to be um, an environment where betrayal is easy to ha- where betrayal will happen easily. And I want to encourage you to discern that. Furthermore, I'd like to just finish our time by making three observations about Jesus from these verses. Bearing in mind that we'll circle back next week as well. So in light of these patterns of betrayal, I would just like to tell you three things that I see about Jesus that maybe can, can help us interact with those things. Number one, what Jesus knows. Number two, what Jesus offers. And number three, where Jesus leads. What does Jesus know? This is something you read these verses and you cannot 
<laughs> you can't read very many of them and not be struck by stuff that Jesus knows. I mean, right from the very beginning, he knows a guy's going to be carrying water like down the street. What are you talking about? He knows that that guy's going to lead to a place where there's a room that they all can, <laughs> that they all can have dinner that night. He knows uh, that somebody is going to betray them. It's even somebody who's eating with them. He knows that everybody is going to scatter. He knows the next time he's going to drink wine in the kingdom of He knows... How many times a rooster is going to crow before Peter denies him three times? It's just shouting at me, just a reality that I'd like to interact with. For many of us, it is just easy to hide things. And it is easy for us to just sort of pretend like stuff doesn't really happen that's happening. Or pretend like um, I don't really have issues or, or whatever. But I want you to know that Jesus knows. He knows. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what you've done. He knows what you're going to do. It is not a bad thing to have somebody in this world actually know what's going on, what's really going on deep down with you. Somebody that says, you know what? I see what you're going to do and I'm still going to identify with you. I, I noticed when I was reading in verse, I think it was 14, right at the end there, right? The very last word. I haven't seen in the whole gospel of Mark yet this phrase, my disciples. I mean, why would it be now in this context where Jesus finally explicitly identifies in an ownership way with these guys? Maybe it's a coincidence. But maybe this is an act of him saying, I know, I know more than you think I know, but I want you to know I am committed to you. I'm not going to, in this moment, say, where can I eat the Passover with some people that I know or with some, some unfaithful disciples that I know? These are my guys and I am committed to you. It is a very freeing thing, I think, for me to know that Jesus is committed to me as his follower and yet he also is not in any way tricked into thinking that I'm better than I really am or he knows and he still wants to be in relationship with us. What does he know? And what does he offer? Yes, this is another Markin sandwich. As you look at this passage, um, if you don't know what a Markin sandwich is by now, I'm afraid you're never going to get it. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All throughout Mark, there are these, um, it's a literary feature where he, he brackets certain things to communicate points. And so as you can see, even with this, there's two big themes of betrayal bracketing something. And so we have to ask, like, what is in the middle? What is this focusing on? And it is a meal. So in the context of him knowing that all 12 of these people are going to betray him, he's still has this meal with them. Now, no matter what you think about this meal, the first thing that we should always remember in the Middle East, now and in ancient Near East, 100% of the time, meals matter. And who we eat with matters. It is a very big deal that Jesus, throughout 
his ministry is eating with sinners and tax collectors, right? It is one of the biggest pictures of the kingdom of heaven that has messed with the world for thousands of years. And here we are in a spot where he is surrounded by people who are for sure gonna betray him. And he's saying, I still want you to be at my table with me. If you don't find this compelling, I don't know what will be compelling when we live in a world that treats betrayal in, in such a strict way. Him knowing, like what is it we can say as, as a person of the world, you could just say, I know that you guys are gonna betray me. You are not welcome to eat with me. I do not wanna sit across the table from you. I don't wanna break bread with you. You do not deserve to have this with me. But instead, Jesus says, no, 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 this is what I want you to be centered on. This is what I want your roots to be in. Me, who I am for you and who I'm making uh, us into. This is my body. This is my blood. You know, when we have uh, time to take communion and we have set up communion tables here for the, the entire time of Lent, so feel free at any point. We are doing two things when we take communion together. We are saying thank you, number one, where we say to Jesus, I receive everything that you're saying right now, that you have done this for me and that you have provided a way for me to be reconciled and for me to be free, for me to be in a good space with the Lord or with God. But we are also saying yes. I don't think we could take communion without saying yes, without saying yes, I believe that this is the way that we should be. I'm identifying with you, Jesus, the one who went to the cross for people who betray him. And I am going to take on that very pattern into my life and say, yes, this is who I am supposed to represent and put on display in this world. And so he offers this opportunity to let go of some of this some of the stuff that the world would label us for for the rest of our lives and say, I want you to take on who I am and put that on display in this world. Lastly, what is Jesus, where does Jesus lead? I don't know if you guys noticed this or not, but in verse 27 and 28, this was something that was like, I don't know, for me, just sort of pestering me all week. You have the uh, Old Testament quote of, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And then you have him saying, but after I have risen, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. Um, okay, he, so what I've been asking all week is why did he say that? Why did he say verse 28, specifically B? Okay, why did, <laughs> he didn't have to say, I'm gonna go ahead of you to Galilee, but he chose to do that. And you might say, I'm making a mountain out of a molehill, which is usually the case. But he said it, okay? And so I was thinking, in any other context, for Jesus to say, the sheep will be scattered, right? I'm gonna, the shepherd's gonna be struck, but I'm gonna be raised in three days. That is just a good thing. Right, we've heard him say it before. I'm going to Jerusalem to die, and then in three days I'll arise. He doesn't add extra stuff to that. But then I started to think about, in this context, Right after he says, the sheep are going to scatter and kind of, you all are going to fall away. You're all going to abandon me. And then he says, I will, I, when I have risen. And I started to think if that were where he just ended it, if it's me and I'm there, this would cause a little bit of anxiety. 
Because where does that leave us? After I have risen, you know, in three days I'll have risen and the first people that you would judge would be the people who were his close friends who abandoned him. After I have risen, I'm going to find you guys <laughs> and I'm going to, you know, throw you in jail. Or I'm going to, after I have risen, don't come talking to me. After you find out that I was right this whole time, you were wrong. Like you missed your chance. Uh, after I have risen, you guys better just disappear. I don't know. Like he could have said anything, but instead he chose to use more language um, of the shepherd motif, right? He says, as the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. But then when he says, after I've risen, I will go before you. Now that word is the same. I mean, can be rendered, I will lead you. I will go before you, which is exactly what a shepherd does. And, and maybe Jesus is just trying to re-emphasize here. I am going to be your shepherd. I am your shepherd. That is not going to change. When this is all said and done, you're still going to follow me. When this is all said and done, I'm going to lead you home. I think that for me, that is just a very important thing to hear. After we go through this hard time, after things are really chaotic and things just get real, you can expect that on the other end of that, it's not going to be just more, like not necessarily, I'm not going to just leave you and abandon you and just say, okay, that, that was crazy. I'm going to... I am going to be somebody that leads you back to a place of safety and, and, and a place where you feel uh, humble again, where you can be home and have peace and rest. And if you're in a place right now where you just feel like you're at a crossroads and you're wondering, should I or shouldn't I? And I don't know if, if I do follow Jesus down this path, where that's going to lead. I just want to say to you that what if this pattern here is still true today? Where if you did follow Jesus down through the dark night of the soul, through the hard stuff, and Jesus is still going to say to you on the other end of that, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to be somebody that you can still follow and I'm going to lead you home. I'm going to bring you back to that place where you can become like a child again. Back to a place of humility. As we talk about betrayal and as we think about it this week in our own lives, really the question that is sort of on the table, whether you fall on one side of the coin or the other or whether it's a mixture of both, the question is going to be, will you trust Jesus? That's what's at stake. Because there's going to be many times in our lives where we're going to have to say, I just trust you and I'm going to follow you. And so maybe week one of Lent, that is our word to just sort of think about. Do I trust Jesus right now? Or what is my trust really put in? Uh, and how can I, in some ways, start to shift back towards putting my trust in Jesus because there's a lot of things in our world that are asking for our trust, but there isn't anything like Jesus who, that, who promises resurrection power and promises, uh, gives us a vision and hope. And he'll see us home. All right, let's pray through these things together. If there's any of us who just feel like we've been saying for a long time, I'm going to do it my way. And thorns are starting to choke out our hearts and our spirit or whatever. It's been a while since we felt like we could breathe. 
Jesus, I just want to pray that you invite them to just trust you today. We underestimate you. We underestimate what you're capable of. And thank you for just inviting us in and saying, I know. If any of us has been overcome by fear and is causing us to sort of like walk away from maybe just seeing that we've become shallow over time and we've been walking away from you, would you just speak to a very deep place in their hearts today, in all of our hearts, and take us to a much deeper place where our relationship with you is not in any way vulnerable or in jeopardy. And we know that that depth comes from receiving what you offer, which is yourself. And we say thank you and we say yes. And if any of us in this whole just world right now are just feeling like it's just always going to be chaos, would it be possible for you to just speak into our hearts this morning and say, I am going to go before you. I'm still in front of you. Follow me and I'm taking you home. Thank you, Jesus, for even ministering to us even now. Amen.